0: 1 John chapter 3. We've been in a series called One Another, moving verse by verse through this book and and really dealing with the one another commands and what does it look like for followers of Jesus to be united not only with him but but with each other and, and the really inextricable connection that those two have. One of the things we've learned is that if if there's something wrong with the horizontal relationship, that's a reflection of the vertical relationship and, and vice versa. And we continue with some really kind of gritty teaching this morning in chapter three. This past October, uh, I had the honor and the privilege of speaking at a conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And during that moment, I shared the platform with a pastor theologian that I have known of his work for a number of years, great amount of respect for him. Uh, His name is Brandon Washington. He pastors a church in Denver, sits on the board of Denver Seminary. And at that point, he had just released his newest book called A Burning House. If you're interested, you can find it at our recommended reading table out in the lower lobby. And one of the things that Brandon was dealing with was how it is that the Western evangelical church uh, with a gospel message that supposedly unites us all, somehow we end up divided from each other anyway. And Brandon took aim more specifically at how that happens in America along racial and ethnic lines. And it was this statement in the book that captured me. Doctrinal identity unites black and white Christians, but divisions along cultural lines have long tarnished the movement's witness. And anybody who's historically honest knows that. We preach exactly the same core message But we're divided from each other, and in fact, uh, in many ways, it's it's almost a passive kind of division, Uh, but if you look particularly at white and black in America, our churches on Sunday morning, they're almost just as segregated now as they were in the 1960s. And so Brandon is exploring that question. Why is that? Our elders have received that book, reading it together. We're working here, as I have shared with you in in earlier messages with minority communities of faith, to, to explore that question. But the truth is, there's all kinds of stuff that we let divide us, isn't there? The racial ethnic thing might be the most obvious, but there's a lot of different things that we let come between us. Churches divide all the time, don't they? over all manner of things, and sometimes it's over the silliest stuff. I worked for the denomination for about 11 years, and that included consulting in various ways with with almost 500 churches, and in the middle of that, I was not the pastor of those churches. I was not a member of those churches. I didn't even have a dog in the fight, but but objectively, I'm trying to seek to to help them through this conflict or that conflict, and often on the drive home, I would find myself musing to myself, really, is he or she going to... To leave? Are they going to get mad? Is that church going to divide? And is it going to happen over this? Like really, is it going to happen over something this silly, like silly stuff? And then the even worse than that is I would talk to some pastors and they wouldn't even know why. I'd be like, what's the source of the thing? Like, why are they angry? I can't tell you how many pastors would say, I don't know, dude, they've ghosted me. Like they won't even talk to me. I have no idea what we did. They just jumped out. And, I, and and you know what? Because I don't know, that makes them even more mad. I guess they think I should know. They've got me confused with some kind of seance person. They've got me confused with somebody who's maybe got a more direct connection to God than they do. I think they've, they've failed to understand if there's a problem. They actually have to tell me about that. I mean, silly nonsense. And then I would go and read the book of Acts and be reminded and perhaps comforted a little bit when I would read stories like, for example, the split between Paul and Barnabas, that even the ancient church struggled with this. We've always struggled with it. You know, we have this romantic idea. We need to get back to the early church. Guys, they had divisions. They had their junk, just like everybody else did. But I'm left asking this question, and I, I just think it's a compelling question. Why is it that way too often those of us who claim to be custodians of the message that can unite and bring together the world more than any other message, why is it that we of all people so often intentionally choose division? Why does that happen? What's wrong with us that we would choose something like this? And moreover, what's the answer to this? And a lot of that answer, as we look at 1 John chapter 3, relates to this fact that the church really is a large spiritual family, but too often we don't treat each other that way. I heard a comedian once say that if if you're a parent, but you only have one child, you really don't count as a parent. Now, if you're a parent of an only child, don't take that too personally. All right, just bear with me here. But but what he said actually makes a lot of sense. If you're the parent of an only child, there's a lot of stuff missing. There's a lot of experiences you've never had. For example, if something is broken in the house and you have one child, you know who did it. You know. You don't have you, the siblings are not I didn't do it. They did they did it. You don't. You don't have. A, you, you have never been going down the road on a vacation, and heard somebody say to somebody else in the back seat, "Stop touching me! Stop staring at me!" All right, We don't, we get on each other's nerves. Yeah. You. And in our house, there's been a few times where that conflict. <laughs> went full-on toxic. I mean, I'm not telling you any details, but, but I will admit this to you because I just know for a fact, Amy and I are not the only family in this room whose kids have had a level of conflict that went to DEFCON 1. I know that. And, and when it happens, it gets ugly, don't it? I mean, it really gets ugly. And, and here's often what we remind them in that moment. You are brother and sister, and you're not acting like it right now. You're treating each other like mortal enemies. You're siblings, and you need to act like it. And you need to do that for several reasons. I mean, for one, 30 years from now, I don't want y'all acting like this when you're deciding what home to put me in. That's not going to work out very well for me. Okay? But here's the other reason. Beyond that stage of life where I'm in the home, I'm going to go be with Jesus. Your mother's going to go be with Jesus. We're not always going to be here, and you are going to need each other. Any other parents in here giving that little lecture? All right, I'm good. I'm just glad I'm not alone. So often that's the question, that's the the, the speech as it is that that parents have to give to their children, and that's exactly the same reminder that we're given as we enter 1 John chapter 3. You're brothers and sisters, and one day you're going to need each other. And guys, I'm going to tell you, it's probably sooner rather than later. Um, one of the books out in that recommended reading is the book, The Fourth Turning. It's written by a Yale historian named Neil Howe. Many of you, a surprising number of you, because it's a big old thick thing, have picked that up and read it, and, and you have told me how depressed it made you. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because the truth is, and again, this isn't about prophecy. This isn't some supernatural ability to to see the future, and perhaps maybe we're wrong. This is just being a really good historian and being able to recognize cycles in history and kind of where we are in those cycles, and, and then recognizing that human beings are both creatures of habit and fallen in sin, and that it's likely this stuff is going to happen all over again, because as Solomon reminds us, there's absolutely nothing new under the sun which means if Neil Howe is right, our world is going to get worse before it gets better. It just will. So here's what John's telling us in chapter 3. Don't forget in the middle of that that you're brothers and sisters, because you're going to need each other for what's coming. This relationship is forever. You are children with the same daddy. Four times in 10 verses, we see direct reference to this. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 10, we see the word, the phrase, children of God. Seven times, we see the phrase, little children. You're in the same family, and you have the same father, and you need to act like it. You know, oftentimes, when there's a mediator who's come into a situation to quell conflict, uh, maybe it's a family intervention. Maybe it's a local politician trying to bring a community together after a big event, divides them, and they they may say a a phrase kind of like this, the things that unite us are more than the things that divide us. Sounds lofty. Also sounds, for those of us who've been in conflict, rather abstract, doesn't it? But what John's going to remind us here of here is that that statement is never more true than than when we're speaking about the church of the Lord Jesus, that the blessings we we share in together, that we're going to see in these 10 verses, should form an unbreakable bond between us, not that we're not going to disagree, not that there's not going to be some fights, not that we're not going to get occasionally get to DEFCON 1 and then have to back down. But if we will actually act like we're brothers and sisters together, we don't just make it through this. We give the world a glimpse of that new community that John's been describing for us all this time. So so let me unpack four blessings that we find in these 10 verses. Here's blessing number one. You and I together have a shared identity, and that shared identity gives us a shared future. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want you to notice the progression here. Our origin as spiritual siblings is not our hobbies. It's not the the things that we have in common with each other. It's not even that we have to like each other. Because our common bond together is not inherent in us. It emanates from the love of the Father. There's a spillover from the love of the Father into my soul and yours. And that spillover then mixes the tanks, so to speak. And and now we're together, united by the love of the Father. That love, John says, produced a spiritual family. And that family produces hope and a future that's characterized by purity. Purity right now. Purity moving forward and purity in the end. And as John describes this progression, what he's doing is he's expressing a larger teaching that we find throughout the rest of the the New Testament. The broader teaching of the New Testament on what John speaks about here is expressed in three words, justification, sanctification, and glorification all three biblical words. So so let's take those in turn. Justification means that God, when I turn from my sins and I put my faith in Jesus, declares me to be righteous, declares me to be not guilty, gives me a new position in Christ. All of that is based not on me or what I did, because there's no way I could earn that myself. It's based in the righteous obedience of Christ and it is based in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, which paid for my sins. And it is on that basis alone, God justifies me. And in that moment, I am free from the penalty of sin. I will never again be separated from God. Isn't that good news? But, but that's, that's just the beginning. It moves from there to sanctification. Sanctification is, is reflected here. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. So when you get discouraged because you blow it, hey, it hasn't appeared yet. You are not yet where God intends you to be. Recognize that. Know that you are still a work in progress, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We're in that now not yet state of growing in our relationship to Jesus. We have a new nature. We're new people. We have a new identity, but, but we're not yet living in the fullness of that identity. Have you noticed that? Do you feel sometimes I'm not living in the identity that God has given me? Why is that? Because we're still sinners and and our lives, uh, we we still live lives that over the course uh, of our time here on earth has to be worked out. There's daily crucifixion of things in our lives that are dishonoring to God. But the hope alluded to here says that day's coming. And that's what's alluded to in the wider New Testament is glorification. So we'll put it this way, justification, I am forever freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, I am uh, progressively being freed from the power of sin. I don't have to live that way any longer. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I don't have to live that way. Glorification means that moment when I see Jesus and I will forever be separated from the presence of sin. Every bit of that reflected right here in John. And our future and our identity is connected. We shall see him as he is, John says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's not just connected to your relationship with God. It's your relationship with each other, which means you cannot have the future that's promised here if you don't claim the identity described here. You've got to understand that. It's it's not just my destiny, it's yours, which means we share it together. We share that identity together, which means we are each worth enduring the other. We are. We're worth it. You're worth it? I'm worth it? I can say that on the basis of God's word? Like, we can do this. You know, this, this works or doesn't in the physical realm. I, I have a younger brother, as most of you know, and we uh, we used to fight a lot when we were younger. I, and, and sometimes it would just come to blows. I mean, it just dudes in a house together. And mom and dad, every time it went that direction, would remind us, your brothers need to treat each other that way. We'll treat each other like enemies. And I get to thinking, so much of our love and respect for each other now comes from sticking it out through those fights and through those struggles, because my bro and I are nothing like each other, nothing. We we are radically different men. For the most part, that's because he's an idiot, but (laughs) I love you, bro. Um, but we're just, we're just different. So, but, but we were reminded when we were kids, that difference is not worth division. It's not. And man, that's been a blessing, especially in, in recent years. He and I have had to bury our mother He and I have had to see more about our father with with increased vigilance as he gets into his 80s. Now, now my brother's living down there with dad, so he's carrying actually the bulk of that responsibility, although I'll be going down there in a few weeks for an upcoming surgery. There's a lot of things that we try to share together, but, but overall, he's doing a magnificent job, and I'm proud of him. He knows we've got our own challenges up here at this stage of life, and here's the thing. My brother and I don't even talk a whole lot. We really don't. But when we reach out with something as benign as a text message, each of us knows the other one is there, and, and we're here when we're needed, and we support each other as needed. And I, I've been thinking about that recently. What would have happened if 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, he and I, or both of us had just decided to cut that relationship off because we were so different from each other? Where, where, would, our, where would our parents be right now? There was a future that as teenagers we could not have conceived, that we now inhabit, and it's better because we remain committed to our identity. We're brothers. This is who we are. Guys, that's what John is calling you and me to, spiritual siblings. Remember that. This larger faith family, there's a reason that we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. And that, he says, leads to purity, and that purity then leads to victory. So blessing number one, we have shared identity as the body of Christ. Blessing number two, we have shared victory with Christ. He goes on in verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is, you ever wanted to know what sin was? There's your definition. It's lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. How do we know that we're brothers and sisters? How do you know that this family is a a family of siblings? It's because we don't keep sinning. We don't continue at that same rate of sin against God or against each other. And what is sin? He says it's lawlessness. That's a compound word in the Greek text. Anomia. Comes from namas, which means law, and a or ante, which means against, against the law. It means to live your life as though the laws of God do not exist. There's actually an ancient heresy, goes back many, many years in Christianity, called antinomianism to live against the law. The law of God has no real role in the life of a believer. Theologian Michael Brown calls this hyper-grace. There's actually another well-known pastor who's an advocate of this view, who says, we've got to learn if we're gonna live victorious Christian lives and invite others successfully into a relationship with Jesus to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament in particular. We've, we've, gotta, we've gotta separate these two. And, and the intent of this, I'll tell you, it's, it's generally well-meaning. The, the, because the intent of it is to emphasize that our faith is ultimately about a relationship with Jesus and it's not about following rules. Well, that's true. That is very true. But relationships, the ones that matter, I've I've discovered something about them. They usually come with rules. They usually do. There's certain things that keep that relationship intact. There are boundaries around that relationship and that's what we mean. You don't get into this family by obeying the rules. That's true. In the same way, you didn't get into your physical family. Well, they behaved really well. How could your parents know that? about? You? Thank God we were born into our families. Otherwise, most of our parents would look ahead 15 minutes after we were born and go, yeah, I don't want that one. All right? Let's put them back. No, we're, you're born into the family. You're born into the family of God. You're born again by the Spirit of God. You have your sins forgiven by the Spirit of God. You have a new nature, which but that new nature changes your disposition toward the rules. It, it's not, I have to do this. It is, wow, I I want to obey, and I want to do this precisely because of my love for the one who gave me this new relationship. So it's not about rules. It's about a relationship. But that relationship-centered faith doesn't mean I get to stay in my sin, for heaven's sakes. Can you imagine adultery happening in a marriage and someone saying to their spouse, don't worry about it, baby. It ain't about rules. It's about the relationship. See, when you bring this down to an earthy level, you begin to realize how utterly absurd that stuff is. Relationships tend to come with rules. It tend to come with rules. And what we learned here is if you continue ignoring God's law, breaking God's law, minimizing God's law, you don't know him. Why is that? Because in him there is no sin, and the reason he came was to take away our sins. We have so short-circuited the gospel to make it about escaping hell. Listen, we believe in hell a covenant. We believe it's literal. We believe it's eternal. We believe all of that. But the gospel is not at the center about you getting a get out of hell free card. That's not what it's about. Jesus did not come primarily to save you from hell. He came to save you from your sins. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will purify them. We so short-circuit our message by telling people, believe in Jesus to escape hell, and then you, you pray this prayer, you get baptized, and then you go right back to the same life you lived before. That's, that's not the gospel. So, so what does all this mean? Well, it means, just to put it bluntly, if there's no transformation of nature, if there's no daily crucifixion of that which is an offense to God and, and to each other, if you're, you are not part of God's family. Because a common element to all of us who are brothers and sisters is a promised victory. I will give you victory over this. So we have a shared identity and future. We have a shared victory that's promised us. And those two things together produce a shared fruit of the Spirit. John goes on in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. That's pretty basic, isn't it? How do I know I'm righteous? If you practice righteousness, you're righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the gospel tells us, that, or let's just personalize, it tells me, I am not loved by God because I obey. I obey because I am loved by God okay? His love makes all the difference. It makes a transforming difference. I have an entirely new identity as a result of that love. That identity, he says, is revealed in action. Or we might put it this way, internal purity produces external justice. Justice just simply means I give my fellow man what they are due. I give you in my relationship with you what is rightfully yours. You give me back what is rightfully mine. And they're a direct confrontation of this whole body-soul dichotomy that Gnosticism had tried to inject into this church family, this idea that you can just live however you want, you can treat your brothers and sisters however you want, because flesh and spirit will forever be separate. John's taking this on once again. Paul would describe this in Galatians in the language of fruit. I want you to see this great contrast. Galatians 5, verses 19 to 22. Read this with me. You will not see a greater, more clear, more understandable contrast than you'll see in these verses. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Well, what about those people who've done deep, thoughtful study? What about those people who've come up with this new idea about sex and gender and all of these things? Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is not antinomianism. This is if you behave this way, you're never going to break a law. It's never, the rules will never be violated. But I want you to notice something here relative to what John's been talking to us about. Right in the middle of the immorality, the drunkenness, the pagan forms of worship, right? All of that is still true. You can't claim to follow Jesus if you're reading your horoscope every day and walking around without your pants on. You can't do it. You can't do it. There's an expectation that if you live for Jesus, it will look like Jesus, okay? But right in the middle of all of that, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. See, some of you all think occultic practice is evil, and you're right. Some of you think immorality sexually is evil, and you're absolutely right, but you're the kind of person that's always looking for a fight. And what you need to hear is God's word just lumped you in with the orgy participation and the drunkenness and the horoscope stuff and the occultic and every bit of it. like. If you are the kind of person always looking for a fight, always looking to be offended, can't ever be made happy, this is you, and neither will you inherit the kingdom of God. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Some of you wonder, like, why does Joel keep harping on what kind of media I listen to and all of it? I got a right to believe what I, whatever. I know I can't do nothing about what you believe. I get all of that. I keep harping on it because you're, you're being discipled, some of you, by those people. And you got boutique media, reporters, politicians running for elected office that are doing what they can to gain personally off of division. Which ones? All of them. All of them. And you're angry, you're upset, you're fearful, you you think somebody that disagrees with you is some kind of enemy that has to be eliminated. We are on the verge. One bad bottle of tequila away from all-out civil war because we listen to that crap. Why is it? Is it because it's wrong? I don't know. They might even be right. I'm not even talking about the issues. I'm talking about the tactics. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Followers of Jesus have no business living like that. We have no business being associated with anything like that. John's message is if you belong to God, all of us belongs to God. And it will show. It will show. So we, we've made a bit too much of our emotions and good feelings. Right? Like, and listen, I, I want people to walk out of here encouraged. I want people to have an encounter with God that leaves them transformed in a way that, that is inescapable. I, I want that for people. But, but way too often, we make more than we should of revivals, retreats, Listen, our kids go to, go to Reboot every year. I'm a fan. I, I, that, that's awesome. Here's the danger in that. Even though all of that is good stuff, sometimes those things can become escapist substitutes for what, for what God wants from you and me in the normal day-to-day that's evidenced when we come off the mountain and go right back to our sin. This is what John's reminding us of here. If you go to the mountaintop and the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you get some emotional gush or you speak in tongues or you do this or you do that and you come off of that mountain and you go right back to your sin, you did not encounter the living God. Because you don't encounter the God revealed in Scripture and go back to your sin. That doesn't happen. And so John, he's being spicy again, isn't he? like the old man took the filter off again god wants this right you don't walk away from god unchanged his children bear a shared fruit so we share an identity we share a a path to victory we share fruit that ought to be evident in all of our lives here's the final thing every bit of this produces a shared love for each other Remember, I told you at the beginning, our love for each other is not dependent on us liking each other. Some of us don't have the same hobbies, don't have the same interests. We got different views of civil society and politics. We got different understandings, different family upbringings. There's a diverse crowd in front of me right now. And none of that can be the thing that brings us together in this unbreakable bond that John has been talking about. It's got to be something deeper than that. Well, it's our identity, our victory, and our fruit. All that together combines us in a shared love. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The evidence of our belonging to Jesus is our love, starting with our love for each other. And that love has a beginning point that's described here in 1 John with the metaphor of a seed. If God's seed abides in you through being born again by your faith in Jesus, that seed will sprout and it will grow love. And if what is growing in your life is not love, whatever you seed is planted in your heart is not from God. Y'all get this? I had a, a friend of mine who, who did kind of an amateur gardener, and he planted at, at, at one spring some flowers, or he thought he was planting flowers, and he couldn't wait to see all the vibrant colors that would pop up. But what sprouted instead was stumpy and ugly, and it took a few days before he realized he'd actually planted vegetable seeds by accident. And so he, at least he got something to eat. Never once, when he told me that story, did he put it this way. Those seeds produce the wrong stuff. He had better sense than that, and we should too. What he said was, I planted the wrong seed. If you're living immorally, if you're living uh, divisively, always looking for a fight, always looking for a reason to, uh, to be suspicious, looking for that, you're evidencing no love for your spiritual siblings. You have the wrong seed planted inside. And John actually goes so far just... I love y'all. Don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. He said it. He said, that seed actually comes from the devil. It is satanic. He's not saying ignore sin or immorality. He's calling that out too, in case you haven't noticed. But he says, if we have no love for each other, for our neighbors, if you're mean as the devil, if you're pugnacious, I mean, you think about it, that's the accusation that gets leveled against the evangelical church. You can be mean as hell as long as you're not gay. They're not wrong in a lot of places. They're not. If those things are true, you have not been born of God. Paul went so far with these folks that he told Titus, you warn such people once and then twice, and then have nothing more to do with them. Pretty straightforward. And then here's the other thing, though. Once the, the intentionally divisive people are removed guess what's going to happen? We will still remain deeply divided over certain things because there's more than one of us in this room. It It just happens. Strong opinion, sometimes unmovable opinion. How do we overcome that? John just told us. Identity, victory, fruit, love for each other and the world. And here's the promise. This will eventually be perfected, and we will all eventually look like him, act like him, speak like him. But the only way to do that is together. I, I started this message with a, a story about a new friend of mine, Pastor Theologian Brandon Washington. I'm going to end with a story from him in this book that I, again, highly recommend to you. He came home one afternoon to find tree tremors in his front yard, and, it, and he, he, had, he panicked when he saw them. He learned that his HOA had hired these trimmers to cut trees back from the edge of the road, which is fine, except that he had this one tree he didn't want touched, sat right in his front yard. It was this beautiful tree that bloomed these gorgeous white blooms every year. And so he's he's like, I'm I'm jumping out of my car almost while it's still moving to keep them from touching that tree. And he said, I, I was comforted when they... The, the arborist walks up to me and says, we're not going to touch that tree. Don't worry about it. Let me, let me tell you what the HOA has hired us to do. We're just cutting back the roads so that big trucks, whatever, they don't get scraped, so the power lines don't get compromised, that sort of thing. He said, but, but the other thing your HOA has, been, has expressly told us is this, do not touch any fruit trees. And Brandon went, that's a fruit tree? He said, yeah, it just doesn't bear fruit. And Brandon's like, what kind of sense does that make? And he said, well, it's a a pear tree that has been altered, okay? It's It's a domesticated pear tree. Botanists have figured out a way to fix this thing so that it does not produce fruit. And Brandon said, well, why on earth would they do that? And the arborist said, so that you will buy it and put it in your yard. Because it's pretty when you do that. Because because what happens is they they breed these things so that they're the perfect size, they fit within your yard and everything. It provides the shade, it's beautiful in the spring. And Brandon said, Yeah, that's one of the reasons we bought this house. It It was beautiful. But it won't drop rotting pears in your yard that you have to pick up and figure out what to do with. Domesticating the tree, neighbor, it gives you everything you want without all that bothersome fruit. We think we can have that spiritually. That's our problem, guys. We, we think spirituality fits into my life and into my yard in a way that everything is, is perfect, and I don't have to deal with anything that might be bothersome to me. And, and in, you know what has happened as a result? We have the Christian gospel, which is the most beautiful, breathtaking, uniting message in the entire world, and in way too many places, it's been domesticated like that fruit tree. And the result is people hear about this wonderful message of reconciliation in the abstract, but then when they come to the live laboratory that is the church, they don't see it. And so they think it must not be real. They think it must not be real. The things that unite us really are more and more powerful than the things that divide us. We we can not only tell, we can show a world that is on the verge of tearing itself apart, a new kind of community. But it starts by remembering you are siblings. Act like it. You are brothers and sisters. You have the same father, and you have the same future. Covenant family, let's live that way. Heavenly Father, as siblings, as children who've been brought into your family, We are so incredibly grateful. Thank you, Father, that such a message comes in the midst of a Lord's Supper Sunday when we can remember that moment in history that gave us this identity. But Lord, in these coming moments, we we need to make some choices about living in that identity. So grant us by the power of your Spirit the willingness to choose these things and the strength by the power of your Spirit once again to make it endure. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area, and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.